Coming up, I got basketball. I have Lakers Warriors. I have a Celtics freakout and I have a basketball owner. That's next. This episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right? First half of the first game. I don't know. West Coast time, that's usually about Five o'clock, 5.30, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. I put up a new rewatchables on Monday night. We did Iron Man, me and Van Lathan. Yeah, I don't dip into the nerdverse that much, but when I do, I bring out the bangers. I love Iron Man. What a great movie. We talked about it. I talked about my love for Pepper Potts. A uh, lot of great stuff in there. You can check that out. Coming up on this podcast, I was getting a solo off the top of Lakers Warriors, but uh, it was such a good game. I had to bring KOC out of his hybrid pair chamber. So Kevin O'Connor from The Ringer joins us. And then an actual NBA owner, Matt Ishbia, who just bought the Suns, he came on to talk about what it's like to be a new NBA owner, how he pulled it off. And uh, a whole bunch of good stuff. So that was fun. And then last but not least, I had to have a seizure about the Celtics. So I brought in our friend Chris Mannix. And we tried to break down how serious this is. How we feel about uh, about the Celtics and what is happening with this team and how unreliable they are. And uh, you, can guess, you can guess my state of mind during this conversation. We also talked a little boxing and a little James Harden as well. So... That is all next. Today's a special day for me. It is May 2nd. My daughter turned 18 years old today. And uh, I'll tell you, my friends, you've heard her on this podcast many times. She would come on and do uh, her teen culture stuff or talk about different things. 18 is frightening. This is it. I mean, she could just leave. I don't want her to leave. I don't think she will. But like if she, it could just be one day she could have a suitcase and she could say, I'm 18, I'm out of here. That's, again, not going to happen. But this is an age where they can just go and they don't really need their parents as much. I mean, I guess she needs me to pay for stuff. But uh, she's going to college in September. And um, <laughs> man, I, I just can't get over it. The Red Sox won the World Series in 04. And she was born in May. She was the miracle fetus. And it does not seem like 18 years ago, I'll tell you that. And you can remember it by the birthdays. If, if you have kids, you have those parties every year, file away what happened on the birthday each year. Like what happened when they were six? What happened when they were eight? What happened when they were 10? 
because once you get to 18, it all becomes a blur and they become these little marks for, oh yeah, the 10th birthday. That was when we went to Catalina. We rode the zip line and then we went to the Ivy for dinner and they had the fireworks Sunday. And that's the kind of stuff you remember when you get old and uh, semi-senile like me. Anyway, happy birthday to my beloved daughter, Zoe Simmons. And uh, let's start the podcast with our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, we're taping this late. It is a little past 10 o'clock on Tuesday night. I grabbed KOC. I don't even know what he was doing, but I was going to solo at the top. That game was so good. Grabbed KOC. He he came out of his hyperbaric chamber, and he's ready to talk <laughs> Lakers, Warriors, game one. KOC, the biggest thing. I mean, there's a lot of subplots for this game. It just felt like a huge game, didn't it? Like for game one, it, it felt there was a finals energy. There's stars. It just felt important. Right. It, it Isn't that like the word mass- you would use? Like, yeah, like massive, important, yeah. memorable, historic. It was just so cool to see LeBron and Curry and just these two franchises and all the titles just kind of out there on the line. Yeah. I mean, th- you got Anthony Davis playing 44 minutes, you know, Darwin yeah. Ham really just saying, we got to steal this game. Like, you got to put it all out there. This is our opportunity. Them coming off two days rest. This is our opportunity to steal one on the road and AD. The performance he had, like, ran out of gas a little bit down the stretch, it felt like. He was running on empty. Um, but overall, throughout the game, him and, and Jared Vanderbilt, the effort they put in on defense, Vanderbilt especially, running around screens, chasing around Stephen Curry, top-locking him, you know, you know, sticking by him full court. It was a remarkable defensive effort, game plan-wise, by the Lakers. It, it felt like, you know, even though that series ended on Sunday, Bill, like you said, it, it had, like, a, a big vibe. You could tell the Lakers were game-planned for this series because with the Warriors and the Kings, you kind of game plan similarly for both of those teams. So maybe that worked to the, the Lakers advantage for both rest and game planning. I'm glad you mentioned the, the Darvin Ham going for it. I totally agree. The 44 minutes for Davis and the 40 minutes for LeBron, like in a vacuum is like insane, especially with Davis who's made a glass. But I think you're right. Coming off that game seven emotional series, where they had to play Friday night. Seems like from the stories, the the words kind of got pushed to the brink there with the young guys and Curry had to give this big speech that Sham Sarani and Marcus Thompson wrote about. So you have this emotional win and then all of a sudden you're playing two days later and it, it did feel like the Lakers were like, we, we absolutely have to steal this one, which was so interesting when it became a 14-0 run. And it reminded me of five years ago when LeBron, he threw everything at them in the 2018 finals game one. And it's like, oh my God, they're going to steal it. And then the J.R. Smith play happens. They lose an OT and it felt like a double loss. Remember? It was like, oh no, now they have to beat these guys five times out of seven. That's not happening. <laughs> and the series felt over. I felt that a little bit tonight during the 14-0 run comeback. I was like, the Warriors win this. <laughs> I actually think the Lakers cannot beat this team five times, but it, they prevail. It, it was really a championship effort by the Warriors down the stretch of that game. Uh, like yeah. they, that's why they're the defending champs. That's why they have four uh, for a team that, you know, throughout the course of the game, they were definitely fatigued a bit. 
Um, I mean, the the fact that they were getting pummeled inside really for the first time in quite a while by AD with everything mm. he was doing, Lakers attacking the basket to, sh- to show that resilience down the stretch of the game shows why this series is anything but over. Golden State, you know, Stan Van Gundy talked about it on the broadcast in that fourth quarter. He's like, Steve Kerr's got to go to some high ball screens with Stephen Curry, just like we saw in that game seven against the Kings. And we did see a sprinkle of that down the stretch. And I would expect, you know, uh, Michael Pina with the ringer tweeted out a stat during the game. Second spectrum said he ran only, I think 14, 15 pick and rolls in this game one. You know, that's not nearly as many as we saw in that game seven against the Kings. I'd expect to see some more, more of that moving forward in the series. The trouble for the Warriors is the fact that like, it's a lot different driving to the basket when it's AD in there and Jared Vanderbilt and help than it is when it's, Devonta Sabonis and Harrison Barnes and help. The Kings are a lot smaller of a front line than what the Lakers showed in that game one. And it's uh, the, the lake the, that's going to be a big adjustment for the Warriors going against this team rather than the Sacramento. Even LeBron has a little more t- size too. Yeah. Yes. The, Jay Adande tweeted the shot charts for Steph in game seven against the Kings and then Steph today. And he had two shots in the paint today. Like it looked totally mm. different. They wall, they basically, they did two things. They sagged off the shooters, right? So, it, which the Kings did a little too, but this felt almost like they were building not just a wall for anybody to drive, but then they were also sending double guys at at Steph and just basically trying to get the ball out of his hands. That might've been why the pick and roll stuff were down. I thought it was interesting. The last minute of the game, he didn't, he didn't, uh, pool took two of the shots, <laughs> right? What did you think about um, those, Bill? Were those the right decisions by Pool? You know, Steph gets doubled on the three that Pool takes. And, you know, ten seconds. Well, the left. first one, Pool Pool drove down the middle with like fifty seconds left, and I actually liked the shot. And I thought he got fouled. I thought Davis like crashed into him, and I was surprised they didn't call it. But um, with the, the refs were fine in that game. The Lakers shot more free throws, but they were also, you know, pounding the paint. Yeah. And the Warriors were jacking. Threes. They were inside the, the took, whole game. Yeah, the yeah. Warriors took 53 threes. You're not going to shoot yeah. a lot of free throws to take a 53 threes. But the second one, Poole was open, right? I mean, you know, they're they're basically doubling Curry. They're like, you're not fucking, you're going to have to make a 35-foot fall away if you're going to want to shoot a three in this spot. It went. To, he passed it to Draymond, and Draymond swung it to Poole, and he did have a really good look, but it felt, I don't know, two feet too far? Like, did you think it was going in? I didn't. No, I didn't think it was going in. I, I do think he took it a little bit too deep. There was 10 seconds left. Maybe you can make a play. But, you know, before that shot, he's 5 of 10 from 3. He's having his best game so far in the entire postseason. Mm. You know, he's limiting mistakes. He had zero turnovers. He had six assists. He, you know, he played fairly well overall throughout the game. I, I didn't mind the shot with 10 seconds left. Maybe there's a way to find Steph. Uh, but even b- prior to Poole launching for the 3, Steph doesn't sprint through Draymond for like a handoff. Uh, Draymond immediately, you know, swings the ball to Poole. There's really no opportunity yeah. for that. So I feel like if Poole didn't shoot in that situation, it could have ended up being like a disastrous possession with the Lakers trapping Steph near the half court at the logo. And who knows how things would have resulted there. They got an open shot, even though it was a deep shot. And Curry got a good look or a little, couple of plays earlier that Davis just stuffed, which oh, was... Yeah. <laughs> Kind of rare to see uh, Steph just get stuffed on one of those floaters. So you, I, you see that a handful of times. We didn't talk about Davis enough. I went to game four in person and Davis sucked and was a step slow. And it was like the classic, if you catch Anthony Davis on the wrong night, you're just like, man, 
this guy. What a disappointment. <laughs> and then he has a game like today. He's 30, 23 and five. He had four blocks. Him and Tim Duncan in 03 were the only guys ever to have the 30, 20 and five with four blocks in the playoffs. Um, and the 44 minutes. Do you trust it, KOC? Is this is this just yet another, he's going to hurt people's feelings again? Or is this, you know, a little like in the bubble where all of a sudden he put together this stretch of awesome basketball and it's sustained? I think he showed at least once in the bubble that he can sustain it uh, as long as he's healthy. Uh, mm. If there's some type of injury that causes him to be limited physically, uh, that's where you have concerns. But like you said, that game four last round, he turns it off that game too. It's not like he doesn't have those moments. Not a small just, game either. They're only no. on 2-1 in the series uh, with Memphis has two one. more home games. And his game two wasn't great either in, in the last round either. But ever since then, that game four, game five, he was, you know, even though they lose, he was terrific. Game yep. six, closing out Memphis. He's unbelievable, unbelievable putting a lid on the rim. And he carried this over to game one here. I, I think with Anthony Davis... It's more like what are the Warriors going to do to try to limit what some of he did in that game one? Because you mentioned it. They're helping off of the Warriors non-shooters, Draymond Green. They're sagging off Kevon Looney, giving him the same treatment that the Warriors gave to DeMontis Sabonis last round. Anytime he's right. on the perimeter, they're sagging off Gary Payton, all these non-shooters. So if you're the Warriors, can you, you know, you're, you're toying last round with not using that Looney Green front line. Can you do that for extended periods of time against the Lakers by going with just going with one of those guys and trying to have four shooters on the floor around Looney or around Draymond? Because that seems to be a problem for that Warriors offense in the half court. They're really stuck in the mud at times. Yeah, Looney and Green together, eight for 20. And I don't think anyone guarded them all game. No. The Lakers use, I thought the Lakers did a great job. The only thing that, if I had to nitpick with Darvin Ham, you know, he called one timeout during the 14-0 run, but um, his dudes look gassed at the end of that game. You know, even LeBron had, they called their LeBron travel down the stretch. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it was, was the a right minute call left. Too. <laughs> it was the right call, but I mean, I I, I couldn't believe that. they I, That might've been three times in his career that they've called that, but um, I thought they scouted him really well. Um, if I'm the Warriors, I'm actually a little nervous. Because I shot 40% from three. I took 53 threes. And I didn't turn the ball over. Like the things Kerr always talks about is, you know, did we protect the boards and did we protect the ball? They only had eight turnovers. and The rebounds were pretty even. But they had no answer for Davis. Now, do I think he's going to get a 30 and 23 every game? No. Um, but when he's like that, I think it's going to be really hard for them uh, to compete. And then the other guy is Russell was pretty good in this game. Right. Yeah. And in crunch time, like had a nice defensive stop where uh, Curry attacked him and he, you know, he kind of held his own. I didn't expect we'd even see him in crunch time. Did you in any of these games? Yeah. Not replacing Van. Yeah, replacing Vanderbilt came as a little bit of a surprise. That was because the Lakers' offense was struggling so much with Vando on the floor that they wanted to spark their offense, even though he he ended up not helping on that end. They just continued to not generate anything. Um, but yeah, yeah D'Lo played a good game. This is, you know, when it comes to that D'Angelo Russell versus Mike Conley decision, there was moments during the first round where you're like, mm, maybe Conley's, you know, reliability would have made sense over D'Lo, but 
You know, we see it with yeah. D'Lo where he hits the three three-pointers in the row at the, at the end of game four to give him a chance in their comeback against Memphis. 31 points in game six with some of the offensive spark he provides in that game one. Even though D'Lo might have some lows, like chasing around Clay Thompson around screens, sometimes he's setting off a bit too much. The offensive highs from him make it all worth it. And, and you especially need that from D'Lo when you have LeBron James shooting 18% from three in the playoffs, shooting below 30% from three ever since early December. LeBron, at some point, I wonder if in, during this series, we're talking about what the Warriors getting their non-shooters sagged off of. Will they at some point say, you know what, LeBron? Oh, wow. Here you go. Let, we're giving you space. You're not going to be able to drive against, uh, a, against us unless it's a packed pack paint. Let's see if you can actually shoot from range because so far he hasn't throughout the postseason and really has been struggling for quite some time now. And uh, I wonder with LeBron there, uh, he still makes an impact. He's being used as a screener. He's you know playing hard on defense. He's making an impact in other ways. But can you limit him even more in that half court by just not defending those perimeter jumpers that he continues to take even with a minute left in the game? I'll tell you the three he took with, under 30 seconds left. Oh, man. Which was like the quote-unquote dagger three. I <laughs> promise you the Warriors were delighted he was taking No doubt. They, no that doubt. was their best case scenario for them. Oh, you're going to do the hero ball three? Awesome. You're already at up three points. 18%. 18% yeah. in the playoffs. Just go to the rim, LeBron. Look at us criticizing the second best player of all time. No, I just, <laughs> I, I think, but that's what makes LeBron LeBron, right? He's He really is not a good three-point shooter, for we have a four month sample size of it now. And he was like, I'm going to make this. And he probably thought it was going in, but I think the Warriors are pretty happy about that. Uh, right now at FanDuel, the Lakers are minus 164 to win the series. And Golden State is plus 138. I think this is going to be 2 2 after four games, would be my, my guess. I'm sure the Warriors are going to adjust. I'm sure they're going to do some stuff. I don't think Davis is going to do that again. The only thing I would say, well, two things. One, what's going to be the impact of the 84 minutes on LeBron and Davis, right? Because they're playing again Thursday. So, and then they play Saturday here and Monday here. So you're, you're already, it's a little Russian roulette with that, with those guys. Cause I, you know, I've said over and over again, like if they, they can get three straight rounds out of those guys without either of them going down, God bless them. And then on the flip side, the Warriors now eight really kind of fierce games. Like that King series was brutal and the pace of it was brutal. And now this game, same thing. And just how sustainable is, is this path going to be? They're going to have a seven game series. This feels like it's probably going to be a seven game series. Next round, Denver, who is the best team in either mm -hmm. conference right now. Setting um, up for Jokic, isn't it, Bill? Oh my God. And Jokic, you know, uh, I'm sure he's just, that Denver's probably just hoping these two teams beat the crap out of each other. But I feel, is it crazy to think this just feels like a seven gamer? I picked the Lakers in six, but it it, it just it just feels like it's going to go to seven games. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. It just feels like it's one it has, of those it series is the vibe. that's going to go seven. Yeah, it does. Uh, I picked Lakers in six partially because the note you hit there that the Warriors just had seven games of hell facing the Kings and, you know, entering this series, that's going to be a different vibe with the Lakers. You know, they like to slow things down more. They like to pummel you with their size and length. Um, 
it's a different vibe there, but it's gonna gonna wear them out in a different type of way. So I, I pick Lakers in six. I'll stick to that for now. Them t- then finishing that off at home, uh, but it's gonna go long no matter what. I'd be sh- I'd be shocked if this is over in five games. I don't really. I never really had a pick for this. I didn't bet the series. To me, it was like if Davis and LeBron can stay in the court and stay healthy, I think the Lakers are going to win. And I don't trust that that's going to happen. So I don't know if that's even a pick. But the reason I thought the Lakers, weirdly, because half of their team they just traded for, I think they know who their guys are and how to use them already. You know, I said this to Rosilla on Sunday. They do, they, Ham does have a feel for what he has with these nine guys, where you look at the Warriors like, Jermichael Green played in the game today. Did you think we'd see Jermichael Green <laughs> again in the playoffs? You no. know, um, Peyton and DiFincenzo, they both played 12. Poole played 30. Moody played six. We don't see Kaminga anymore. Um, I still feel like Kerr's trying to figure out what he has. And it's game eight of the playoffs. And I don't think he knows. I think he knows what he has with his, with his best five. I don't think he knows what he's getting from Poole night tonight. I don't think he can play Peyton and Draymond Green together because then you're three on five offensively and everybody's sagging off. Um, so it's like they're experimenting on the fly and they're the defending champs. And the team that got thrown together at the trade deadline feels more stable. That That's a weird series. Yeah, for sure. And I think with Kerr, you're probably going to see him try out potentially an Anthony Lamb type. Like you could oh my God. See, see something like that. You know, if he doesn't feel like something's working with a Moses Moody or Jermichael Green, maybe he continues to throw darts even further down his bench. And on the Lakers side of things, really the only, you know, the weak spot off the bench today, granted he's a plus four in the game. He he hits a three-pointer. Troy Brown really had, he struggled chasing around Clay Thompson on some of those off-ball mm. screens. Maybe Ham goes, you know, to Beasley or Walker at some point during the series. Um, but other than that, you know, I feel like you're right, Bill. The Lakers, me and Verno talked about this on mismatch as well. It's like, you know, part of the, the reason why I, I was so high on the Lakers after the deadline was it doesn't, LeBron might not be the clear best player in the world anymore, He, but he doesn't have to be every single night with this team. Sometimes it's going to be Austin Reeves running pick and roll down the stretch of games like in game one against Memphis. Sometimes it's going to be D'Lo getting hot. Sometimes it's going to be a surprise player like Rui Hachimura. Dennis yeah. Schroeder, we know for years he can do that. Never mind what AD can do. So I feel like with the Lakers, they have so many different guys that can go off and attack mismatches or just ride the hot hand. Uh, whereas with the Warriors, it is so Steph focused uh, around him right now that unless it's Poole having a hot night or Clay on a heater, like you need, like they need that fifty bomb from Steph on on a lot of nights. Whereas the Lakers get it from different players, and sometimes it will be LeBron. I feel like both of these teams lose to Denver. You think it's Denver's just- year? They, that they got enough defensively. Jokic like is so transcendent. They're just checking boxes. Like even the one game they lost in the playoffs so far, even that one they could have rolled over. Remember they they fought back oh, yeah. from twelve down, and I think that team just has a lot of continuity and a lot of spirit, and they have just a transcendent guy who's at the absolute peak of his powers. And Murray looks like Murray again, and I just think that's the safest bet, especially when you go. I'm going to talk about the East later with Chris Mannix. Um, the Celtics Sixers series, and you just like, who do you like in the East? It's it's just there's flaws <laughs> all over the place. So let's talk about Knicks Heat really quickly before we go because I grabbed you out of nowhere at ten o'clock at night. Uh, did you see anything <laughs> from that game? 
that made you feel a little differently about a series where Miami already banked the win they needed and sent Jimmy Butler home? Any Anything for the Knicks to take away from that game? Mm, I mean, I, I think with Butler being out for Miami, you can kind of scratch that one off. Uh, you know, Miami, Miami, they're sagging off of Knicks shooters in game one, daring, you know, them to shoot Obi top and takes 11 three-pointers. Hart's not right. hitting anything. Um, and in this game, game two, Knicks shoot 40% from three. Sometimes it can be that simple. Uh, but I think overall that the big difference was Julius Randle being in the at game for game two for the Knicks with the shot creation he provided, attacking closeouts, creating from the perimeter, helping Jalen Brunson out and RJ Barrett out in ways that they didn't have that element in their front court in game one. That's going to have to be the adjustment from Miami with how do you handle Julius Randle with the sides he, size he provides as a playmaker moving forward in the series. Feels like another seven-gamer. Great Brunson game today, though. That oh, Brunson, Brunson starts off slow, and then especially like so much history in that building. It's, it's so like cool. the ghosts of Nick's past. They've Mellow. tapped into something that the, <laughs> Cel- yeah, the, the Celtics have been doing this forever, right? They would take a... They're just decorating the court side and the lower bowl with just ex-Celtics. And it's worked forever. The Lakers do it a little bit too. Um, but the Knicks now at least have enough of these guys from, you know, they have mellow, but then a lot of the Ewing guys and they just yeah. populate them with Different all these errors, celebrities. All throughout. Let me ask you a weird question. Cause you're, you're, you're young. I mean, I, we hired you, you were, I think 15 years old. Um, <laughs> 2016, like 2016. I can't remember. I'm really 32. <laughs> um, but the so the Knicks in your lifetime were never, never really good except for like that couple year window in the late 90s early 2000s when you were like a you know yeah. a kid like the Knicks have never mattered really since you've loved basketball is it weird when you when you're watching them and everybody's talking about this is amazing the Knicks all the history but you have no history of the team like what's your perception of well, watching I think, that I think like you're growing up a Red Sox fan, you get the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry. Growing up a Patriots fan, pounding on the Jets, you sense the passion of Jets fans. You, you, yeah. you know, losing to the Giants in the Super Bowl, sorry to bring it up, you sense the passion of New York. So I felt like I always got it, you know, from the New York overall perspective with their sports teams. And, you know, attending a Knicks game, I, I don't think my first Knicks game was until I was with the ringer. But even when the Knicks sucked, the crowd just had a vibe. Like there was, yeah. there was some energy in the building. You could sense the passion around the game, much like Boston, you know, much like Lakers fans, some of these real passionate fan bases. So I, I always kind of felt it through their other teams, just knowing the passion of that fan base for all of their sports teams. I could relate to it, you know, through the rivalry, uh, you know, with our own city. Um, yeah. But like seeing the Knicks now be good, like you get a taste of it with the bing bong video a couple of years ago and you see the fans go fans going nuts every single game now. It's it's really cool to see that rewarded. Was it like this in, in the 90s? Like could, could, without social media and everything, could you sense this, you know, it, you know, no matter where you are in the country or in the world with the Knicks fans? I mean, the Knicks were never good when, you know, they won in 70. They had that run 70 and 73. They won. And then they just, they cratered. They had like the one really good Bernard King year when they went head to head against the Celtics, they cratered again. Then Ewing came back late eighties and they were always kind of, you know, somebody would beat them in round one, round two. Then they finally ascended. They made the finals that one year. 
And that run from 94 to 90, or I'm sorry, 92 to, um, I don't know, 2000, was, but they were relevant every year. And I think that's, so when you see those guys at the games now, it's all the guys <laughs> from that era, but it was really only a nine year era. And then they weren't relevant again for 20 years other than the one mellow year. And the so one like mellow year, energy? they got bounced in round two. You know? So it's all this pent up energy from New York then. Yeah, the but there's the DNA. And then you have with the mm -hmm. older, older fans who grew up hearing about the Bradley Frazier Reed teams, you know, but Bernard, you know, Bernard had that one great year. So there's enough, but it's just, it's crazy. They haven't been better. You know, you would think that would be the Celtics rival, but the Celtics rival is Philly. That's, that's what it's been my whole life, you know, and I way more than the Lakers. Like we've played, I don't even know how many times we played Philly in a playoff series. So yeah, it's it's cool to see the Knicks kind of, it's a taste of what it should have been like if they had better mm -hmm. ownership and better luck, basically. But uh, but yeah, great series. I think from a subplot standpoint, this playoffs is about as packed as we've had. You know, you go through all the teams and every, like even the Jimmy Butler thing, which felt like the biggest story in the league a week ago. And now it's like seventh. <laughs> compared to you now, now if Curry and LeBron and you know or the Celtics could have fall apart it's just amazing content for uh for people like us it's a, it's a great playoff I'm, I'm I'm having a lot of fun every single series is fun in its own way even like you mentioned Denver they held Phoenix to 87 points they, they take two months off playing defense right. Jokic tanks his MVP chances because they're they're saving it up for this for this right. playoff run, I, like they they've just flipped the switch, and it's amazing to see them, you know, really dismantling that Suns team so far. All right, well, you can see KOC on FanDuel TV on the stuff we are doing with them. You popped on through the Ringer. You have uh, Beyond the Arc, your little your little video half hour video show that we have. Plus on the mismatch, um, how's that? You like the FanDuel TV stuff? I think it's, it's been fun. really good. It's fun. I mean, like we're just in the the baby stages. They were building it up now. It's it's fun to get going with through the ringer with Tate beyond the arc, my show, and you know all the other stuff we got on there. It's uh, we're building it up, and it's been a lot of fun so far. Looking forward to doing more and more in the months to come with these great playoffs, and then the draft with Wemby and free agency. Well, the lottery, it's we got the lottery. How many weeks Woo. from the two weeks from the lottery? Right, two weeks. Yeah, May sixteenth, baby. Let's go. You still have Miller over over Scoot. Yeah, I got him second still right now. Scoot third. Scoot third. Yes. Is that? Is that a divisive opinion or is that like, um, it feels probably like 50, 50, you know, a lot of people have scoot. It's so it depends on who gets second pick who takes. Yeah, for sure. You need like, a guard think, or you need four. Yeah. yeah. I mean like on your personal board, you know, I have Miller second regardless, but mock draft wise, it would very much depend on who gets the pick. So have we measured Wemby yet? I mean, he, I think he technically measured at seven foot four. Um, but there's been stuff out there like he's actually seven foot five. He just doesn't want to be listed as seven foot five, kind of like Garnett didn't want to be a seven footer. Um, so we'll, we'll get those real measurements at some point, I'm sure. Here's my idea. Pay-per-view measurements for just for <laughs> Wemby. If it was like 1999, it's like we're going to actually measure Wemby right now. I'm like, all right. How much is it? 20 bucks? All right. I'll watch this. Because I, I think he might be like seven six. You could talk me in a seven six me. with him, yeah, because Kareem was a legitimate seven seven like three and a half seven four, but always listed himself a little lower. But I think these tall, tall, tall guys are actually like they don't want to know. Yeah, because seven like seven yeah. five seven six, you almost sound like a freak. 
right? So he's <laughs> well, like, yeah, I mean, I'm seven three. He, he he is. It's a compliment. <laughs> well, but that's true. He is a freak. <laughs> it's a total compliment. But Bill Walton was seven two, and he always just say he was six eleven. <laughs> so I think there's, you know, it's weird when people lie about their height that they're actually taller. Anyway, uh, all right, KOC, uh, you can check them out on the mismatch and on our FanDuel TV stuff. Thanks for staying up with me. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Bill. It's NBA playoff times, my friends. Turn crossovers into cash with FanDuel. Just visit FanDuel.com slash BS right now. Place a $5 bet and you'll get an instant 150 bucks back in bonus bets. Win or lose. I'm going to either do a same game parlay on Wednesday or Thursday. I'll announce it on my Twitter feed. I'm red hot. I won on last Wednesday with a LeBron Giannis parlay. Same gamer. I won on Sunday with a Warriors, Curry, points and threes, same gamer. We boosted both of them. Everybody was super happy. There is no better place to bet all the playoff action than America's number one sports book. Just go to FanDuel.com slash BS. Sign up to get $150 in bonus bets when you bet your first five bucks. FanDuel, the official sports betting partner of the NBA. You must be 21 plus and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fandle.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hope is here. In Massachusetts, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 1-800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. In New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. In Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, or Virginia, call 1-800-GAMBLE or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. In Connecticut, call 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. In Kansas, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Louisiana, 877-770-STOP. In Maryland, visit mdgamblinghelp.org. In Wyoming, 800-522-4700. In West Virginia, visit 1800gambler.net. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, award-winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. It's given me, my family, many others real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. A 60-day money-back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two S. Simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. All right. So we're taping this part of the podcast. It is 1130 in the morning Pacific time. We have a new NBA team owner here, Matt Ishbia, who bought the Suns and the Mercury. I guess a couple months ago, um, for a pretty big evaluation or valuation, I always call it evaluation. 
Uh, but we're catching you with the sun's down. Oh, two. I, I'm, I thought you'd look way more somber. I thought you'd look like the guy from Anchorman with the beard, drinking milk. Are you okay? How are you handling playoff losses? Hey, you know, we're working hard. I feel good about our team. Uh, we're going home. Obviously, Denver's a great team. And so I, I feel good about our guys. I know Coach Monty Williams and the whole team and is ready to go Friday night. And hopefully we can uh, bounce back and protect home court and win a game or two. So what's it like? I want to go through the whole world of you decide to buy a team, you buy a team, and now you're suddenly the owner of the team. So uh, uh, let's go backwards. So you're circling this for a while. You played basketball in college. You were at Michigan State. Um, then you made a bunch of money and you start thinking, all right, NBA. So it, when is this on your radar? How many years ago? And how do you start getting your tentacles out, trying to feel it out? Yeah, you know, it was obviously a dream to one day play in the NBA. I wasn't good enough to do that. So I, I played in for, for Tom Izzo at Michigan State. I had a great experience there. And I was just working for the last, now it's 20 years now at this mortgage show. I got here as 12th person. And finally, about four or five years ago, it's like, gosh, I'm making some money. Could I ever maybe buy into a team or maybe buy a team? But it was what happened was I wasn't making enough money to keep up with the, the valuations. And so I uh, always was watching from afar. It was always a dream come true. I love business. I love basketball. And as business kept getting better and better and, uh, you know, the dream became more of a reality. And then obviously getting the Phoenix Suns and Mercury was like beyond uh, the dream. And so so excited. And there's so much better than me. I even could have imagined. That's how great it's been the first couple of months. So do you float it out? Like you must know some people who either own teams or own pieces of teams. Are you floating that out? Is there some secret slack? Is there some text thread where you're like, Hey, who's available? So are you just, it's almost like buying a house where you've decided what neighborhood you want and you're circling. How does it work? You know, honestly, it started with, you know, first um, being able to financially do it. And second saying, this is what I really want to do. And if you want to do anything in life, whether it's business, whether it's buy a team, whether it's be a great husband, wife, whatever it may be, you have to put your focus on it. So I started putting my focus on it years ago. And the focus was not like calling up and saying, I got a couple billion who wants to, who wants to sell. It was building relationships. First, the league office, NBA office, got a chance to meet Adam Silver and these people and some all the great executives there. Then meeting owners, the minority owners, then a majority owner, then flying to a game and having dinner with Mark Lazary, like just like different owners. And you just start doing it. And it's been years. Like people have no idea. NFL owners, NBA owners, spending time, asking questions, getting on Zooms, doing every aspect of it. It's been years in the making for the one opportunity. Like, will Phoenix ever come up? Could it be Phoenix? Like that'd be the dream, right? And so and then Phoenix Suns came up for sale and, and the Mercury and it was and so, but you, it's not like you just wait around and just, Oh, I'm going to start bidding on a team because it came for sale. That that's that's a surefire way to not get the team, in my belief. The one way to do it is you have to put the work and the effort in, and it was years of work that no one knew about that uh, that's that's helped me get to where I'm at. So, like, it's Adam Silver's birthday. You're sending him a text, sending him a nice nice little thing of steaks. You're just kind of working them. At every aspect, and not just Adam Silver, who's obvious, but every person that's involved with it. Built, meeting those relationships, met a lot of people, players, going to games, going to the 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 Las Vegas, you know, um, the events in Las Vegas for the summer leagues, like just being around and starting to meet people. So you came pretty close to buying in with the Bucks, and I actually talked. You first came on my radar because I'd heard about that that there was a possibility you might buy Mark Lazarus' stake in the whole thing. And then when the Suns, when that thing finally blew up, and it was clear they were becoming available. I remember even mentioning on a podcast right as that was happening, I was like, because I'd heard your name. It was, it's almost like the lottery 
in the NBA where you kind of know who the who the key guys are going to be. You became a name that kept popping up, and I'd heard about the Bucks thing. Did you back off the Bucks thing because you thought the Suns were coming, or like what was the timing of that? The reality is this, you know, um, the the Phoenix Suns, like so, like I'm I'm from Detroit. I live, still live here with my three kids in, in Michigan. The Detroit Pistons was always like my team growing up. And so it was always like, could I ever buy the Pistons? When I realized that that wasn't going to become for sale, you know, it was like, where would you want to buy a team? And the answer is Phoenix. Like if you, but then it comes down to like, oh, he's not going to ever sell the team, right? So you started going through that process. But Phoenix, like if I'm in Michigan, where do I want to spend my winters? Phoenix. If I, if I, Phoenix Suns is like, I think a sleeping giant could be one of the best franchises sports. And it had a WNBA team, which was very important to me because I wanted to have both. And so Phoenix was one of few that the owner owned both. And so it was like the perfect storm and dream. And so Milwaukee, like I talk to every owner, I get involved with everything. But the reality is when the Phoenix Suns became a possibility, 100% of my focus on the Phoenix Suns and Mercury and how can I make this happen? And that's what we were able to do. I did a thing on my podcast in September about that. I, I thought this was the best team that was going to become available. And it reminded me of when the Warriors became available in the 2010s. They're a pretty damaged franchise at that point, right? They hadn't had a lot of playoff success, but they had this incredible market. They were right in the in in Silicon Valley, like ground zero, basically. Um, they had Steph at that point, and they had this incredible fan base. And you know, it, it was a th- and I remember writing it at the time, like this is a team that if the right owner comes in, they can balloon this into a whole different thing. Now you look at Phoenix, really good market. Players like living there um, and, a, and an awesome fan base that dates back to 1970 that really every decade they've been relevant. They've always had these pockets and stretches of finals, conference finals, um, a lot of great players. So were you looking at this like this is the best team that's going to be available for the next 20 years? Like, did you map it out? Did you make tiers? Uh, uh, How did you figure it yeah, out? Absolutely. So I mapped out a whole bunch of different things from from destination for players, as you mentioned to fan base, which I think we got the best fan base in all basketball, right? I went through a bunch of different things and Phoenix was the choice. Problem is I didn't think Phoenix would ever come for sale, right? So you never really knew it would come for sale. So that day that it got announced and, uh, you know, it was like, okay, all of our attention, this is to become a reality. Let's go get this. Let's figure out the right way to do it. And so um, I think Phoenix Suns can be the elite franchise in all of the NBA. And we are going to work towards that with the great people. It's not going to happen overnight. And that's the goal, along with the WNBA with the Mercury. And so we're going to do great things. I'm, I got lucky. I got a great place, great location, great fan base. Now I got to put the right leadership in place, as in myself, along with other leaders, and start executing on the plan. And we're going to start. We started already, but we're going to keep going. So there's a business piece to this. There's a you love basketball piece of this. But it's also fun to, to be the owner of a basketball team. I think out of all the sports, you get to sit courtside. You know, somebody like you, most people, unless you were in the Midwest or, you know, familiar with the mortgage world or whatever, most people don't know who you are. Now you become like, in a weird way, like a celebrity. Um, are you ready for the celebrity of all this? There, It's a totally different level of fame and recognition, right? Yeah, it's definitely different. Uh, it's not my wasn't my my goal or isn't the, my favorite part of it, but I know what comes with it, and and it's an honor that people are excited that I'm the owner and when I'm in Phoenix, so like people are proud and happy and excited for me to be there. So it's an honor that they want me to be there. I recognize that people 
notice things I'm doing. And I, I have a little bit in the mortgage business, but it's it, mortgage business is one one millionth of what the MBA is. And so, um, yeah, I, it's been a little bit different, but at the same time, I'm embracing that and recognizing that that's part of the, the, the game. And I just got to keep pushing forward with all the great positive things. And it's still a positive. It's not a negative. It's just, it's just different. Have you been practicing your sitting down courtside fist pumps and you know, the, the kind of things that happen <laughs> you know, when you're getting camera time? You got you got to get like a coach. Yeah, you know, so I, I was the end of the bench for Michigan State basketball for so long, so I know how to fist pump and get things going. Like I'm, I'm first class in that. You should look at the old tape from 2000. I, I can high five with the best of them. That's good. You got the resume. What what kind of feedback were you getting from the people in Phoenix and extended Phoenix? Because, you know, we don't need to dwell on the previous ownership system uh, situation, but it wasn't awesome. And it, you know, they were in the news a lot. There were bad headlines. I He was a pretty polarizing owner, Robert Sarver. And then you come in and it's, you know, if this were a business, this is like you buy a restaurant that people really liked that had kind of gone sideways a tiny bit. Now you can come in and reinvigorate the restaurant. What are people saying to you? Like, are they thanking you? Or are they like, what are you hearing? Yeah, you know, people have been very grateful to me and I'm grateful to them that they welcome me to the Valley, welcome me to the Phoenix area. And so, um, you know, I don't, you know, the past with the past ownership, a lot of things happened. I wasn't there, obviously. So I told the guys and gals at the company, like, we're going forward. We're going to go forward with this vision. I laid out the vision to every person that works the organization, including the players. Here's what we're going to go do. And here's how we're going to accomplish it. And then we're going to work every day to do it. And so, you know, yeah, it was obviously things weren't whatever. We never won a championship in Phoenix. That doesn't mean that we're going to win a championship tomorrow or next year, but we are going to work towards that in the Mercury and the Suns. The Mercury have won three, but the Mercury and the Suns, and we're going to make it the best place to work. Great for the fans, great for the community. And so, yeah, I think people are very excited that I'm the new owner. I think that they know I'm, I'm young. I have energy. I'm excited about it. I love basketball. I want to win. Like, like I'm a fan more than I'm an owner. I'm much closer to the fans than I am like to the owners. Like I just want to win. So whatever it takes to win, we're going to do what it takes to win. And uh, that's what we're going to try every single year. And we can't win every year. You can't win every game, but we're going to try. Are you going to be one of those crazy owners that suits up every once in a while for the scrimmage and shoot some threes and you become like <laughs> a stretch, stretch four? Are you going to get out there and put the shorts on? I, you know, I mean, I, I know they have 10-day contracts out there. I don't think we're going to use one on me. I think there's a lot better players <laughs> out there. But uh, I, I, I used to be okay. I used to be uh, very average, but okay at the, at the best. So what was your game? Give me like an NBA comparison. So I was the, the, the hustling point guard that ran the offense really, really well. The leader of the team in high school and college. In high school, I scored you know, 25 points a game. But in college, like I was the guy that knew the offense, ran the right plays, made the right passes, was the coach on the floor is kind of what my my game was. Um, once again, not good enough to be at Michigan State, but I, I worked hard to, to, to maintain that spot on that team. So a little more like TJ McConnell or a little more in like the Peyton Pritchard kind of area? I'll, th- I'll take the TJ McConnell comparison. I think he, he was okay. a, he's a good player. Like, or, you know, I could think of a lot of other players, but not like, you know, thinking of like great, think of great point guards that couldn't really score that much and that weren't that athletic. And that that's probably me. <laughs> So like I, I had the mind to play. I'm, I'm at a good mind. I had good court vision, but that's about it. What, uh, what's your Phoenix Suns kind of history? Like how much do you know about the franchise? Do you feel like you had to bone up? Cause there's a lot of, lot of close calls and almost and heartbreaks. And, you know, it's like one of those secretly tortured franchises that you can't say it's tortured in a way like the Kings or somebody like that, because they've had so many great players and so many great seasons and so many great runs. But how, yeah. how much of the of the backstory do you know about? 
So a, a good amount of it. So I, w- I was uh, obviously growing up I was a Pistons fan, Bad Boys fan. And so when the Suns in, in the 92, 93 team with Kevin Johnson and Barkley and Marley and Chambers, yeah. like, I was a big fan of that team because in Detroit, we don't like the Bulls and we don't like Jordan. So I was cheering for the Suns, anyone to beat them. And they, they obviously didn't win. So I became a Suns fan back then, back in you know the early 90s. I was 12 years old. And then, uh, but then obviously followed, I, I love point guards. So Steve Nash was one of my favorite point guards. And so he's a super point guard. Uh, super player, MVP of the league. I would say he's my size. He's a little taller than me, but he's a super player. So I always was a big Steve Nash fan. So I watched that generation. And obviously, you know, more recently, Devin Booker and these guys, like seeing what Devin is doing. He's from the state of Michigan. And so naturally a huge fan of him. And so I've been a Phoenix Suns fan from a distance. That's one of the reasons I thought of myself of like, that would be the perfect franchise. There's so much I knew about them and cared about them and cheered from them, you know, from, from afar. How much is true of the Kevin Durant trade story that they were kind of at a stalemate? And even though you didn't officially own the team yet, you kind of came in the day before and you were like, guys, let's, this is Kevin Durant. Let's go. Let's do whatever it takes. Because stuff's been reported. Like, is, is some of it apocryphal? What's true? Yeah. You know, so I, but when we made the trade, I owned the team. Um, you know, but at the same time, when it got announced December 20th, there were certain rights that I had as while the NBA was vetting. And so I was already interacting with James Jones, our general manager, who does a great job. And so when that trade became a possibility, it originally started with the, the other owner, Joe Sy, reaching out to me. This is the day uh, before I actually closed on the team. I think whatever that Monday of that week. And so that's when it started, where we started talking about it. I think they had just traded Kyrie the day before. And, uh, you know, James and Ryan Rush and our, like everyone was involved. I, I know James was talking to Monty. I wasn't spending time with everybody, but, um, you know, I was involved, but, you know, our team made a decision that this was the best chance for us to win a championship. And Kevin Durant, I mean, this guy is unbelievable. Not only because you see him on the court, but you see and everyone else sees, but the work ethic of this man, the, dr- the drive, the grind, like I couldn't be any happier to have him on our team, him and Booker. And of course we got some other great guys with Chris and, and DeAndre, I'm not going to name everyone, but. Like it was, it was an awesome, awesome thing. I'm so excited about it. And we got these guys for a couple more years to do great things together. So there was no gulp moment when you were like, all right, Bridges, Johnson, Crowder, four firsts and the swap. And you're just looking at it on a whiteboard. Like, man, that's a lot. No, not at all. You, you got, you, it takes what it takes to win. You got to try to win. You can sit there and say, let's try to be a fifth seed. Let's try to be in the middle. Like, and we could get we could get knocked out in the second round as we were in the second round, right? Or we could win a championship. There's no guarantees to win. But if you don't try, you're, you're they're going to know me for 50 years as the owner in Phoenix. I'm going to try to win every time we can. We're never going to be like, oh, well, let's kind of play it straight. Let's prepare for this. You can either plan to win or you can go try to win. I'm not planning to win. I'm going to go try to win. And yeah, do you give up players? Like we didn't want to give up Mikhail or Cam. These are great players. We wanted them on our team. We definitely want to give up four first round picks, but it's Kevin Durant. You put him with yeah. Devin Booker. I think we have two of the top five, maybe two of the top 10 players in the NBA today. And I have him not, I didn't borrow him for three months. I got Kevin Durant for three more years. And I got Devin for five more years. Like we got a run going. Yeah, it's funny. I always had a running bit in my column and my, my podcast about, I used to call it new owner syndrome when a new owner would take over an NBA team and they kind of want to put their imprint on right away. But usually it would be a terrible trade or a crazy trade or, you know, some sort of huge swing. This was a little different because you got Kevin Durant. It's tough to be like, oh my God, I can't believe they traded for the 14th best player of all time or 15th or whatever it is. But uh, you're in the mix. I think there was, didn't you feel like as somebody who loves basketball, there did seem 
like some new guy syndrome with this team because he just hasn't played enough games with everybody. And that, to me, that was the red flag for this year. Can they, how fast can everybody seem like they've been together for a long time? Because continuity is so important in basketball. You can kind of still feel that in these games, right? Yeah, well, we're still gelling. I mean, I think we played, what, 14, 15 games with Kevin out there. Yeah. And so it's still, and, and really only in the playoffs, it's been seven games where at the high intensity level when he's playing 40, 45 minutes. So there's still gelling time and Coach Monty Williams is putting everyone together and trying to make it all work. And But the reality is the best chance for us to win a championship this year is with Kevin Durant. And the best chance for us to win a championship next year is with Kevin Durant next to Devin Booker, next to our guys. And so uh, to me, honestly, you know, I know people like, it's always good to like, oh, well, what if they would have done this? Or what if they went to trade? It's Kevin Durant, right? It's not even a discussion. Yeah, you get Kevin Durant on your team, one of the top 10 players, top 15 players that's ever touched a basketball, along with Devin Booker. And it's not like Kevin Durant's in his last year. We got years to go. We're going to work together. He makes everyone else around him better. Devin's already better. Book makes everyone else around him better. Like we're going to, and people want to come play with these two guys. We're going to keep winning and we're going to make sure we win at the highest level. And the goal was to win a championship. Well, now you can go away during the draft too. You can just, you take a trip, <laughs> go to Europe, go wherever. You're not going to have a first round pick for like five years. You just leave. Yeah, we got one next year. We got one next year. So we, we you know, we have a draft pick first round, but yes, we have every other year. We lost four years, um, but yeah. once again, it's, it's worth it. And hopefully our first round picks that we gave up are all going to be in the 20s and 25th pick in the wrap because we're going to be winning. So, all right. So Cuban, his era comes in late 90s, 2000s and Wick and that kind of generation of owners, right? Like the kind of the tech, the early tech era guys, the younger guys, the think outside the box guys, the why don't we have a charter plane yet? Why are our locker rooms so crappy? Um, just kind of reinvigorating what it's like to own a team. It's not, we're not just kind of the caretakers of this team. We want this to be this living organism and we want to take advantage of opportunities that are coming. And you see some of the evaluations, like the Celtics were, I don't know, 370, something like that. And now it's got to be 15 times that. The Warriors, what they did with their team, the Mavericks. Now your generation's coming in. What are the opportunities? What do you see like for this generation going forward that those guys saw in the early 2000s with how to take an asset, make it a much bigger asset? What is, what's, what's it going to be for your generation? So a couple of things. First off, you know, I think those guys are all amazing. I got a chance to meet them. Like these are, I, I've idolized those guys that you just mentioned. And now I get to sit in the same room with Mark Cuban and Wit Growth. Like that's pretty cool stuff, right? Um, secondly, like I might look at it a little differently. Um, I think of things like, how do we make the NBA fan experience phenomenal? How do we dominate that? How do we change the game and get them more global? How do we do things different? Like, like I'm not as focused on valuations. Like money always follows success. And that's how I built my mortgage business and built my life. And so we're going to focus on the fans. We're going to focus on taking care, care of the players. Like what do I got to do to make the players even better, healthier, all these like technology, science, like, and do things at the new level, not thinking like, well, if I do this, we'll make this. Like that will follow. I don't even pay attention to it. I'm not selling the team ever. So I don't care if the value is 4 billion forever or 400 billion is not going anywhere. And so my focus is on the players, the fans, the experience. And quite honestly, like, I make a good amount of money in my mortgage business. I just want to have fun. This is fun. Like I want to win. Like we're going to compete at the Phoenix Suns and the Mercury. There's a lot of uh, progress we can make on the women's sports. I'm very excited about that opportunity, the WNBA. So I look at it maybe differently. I don't, I don't have a silver bullet to like solve these things, but I want to make the game better and, and help in any way I can with the players, the fans and that experience. And I think, you know, the valuations, that stuff will follow. Well, one of the things you did, it just got recently announced about putting the games on free TV next year. 
And I know there's some things you can't talk about with that, but the concept of NBA teams walling off their games, right? Making them pay games. It's not, not much different than what we deal with with something like podcasts, right? Where we can make podcasts exclusive on Spotify or we can make them wide so everybody can hear them and just try to make more ad revenue. Um, when you're putting the games on free TV and you're trying to widen the audience for what you have, to me, for what you just laid out, what do you care? You're going to own the team for the next 50 years. Wouldn't you want as many people as possible to see the games? Isn't that a better way to get kids and people from all kinds of different backgrounds to watch? Aren't you building fans? Why don't more teams think this way? You know, I don't know. I can't speak from others, but from my perspective, you just hit it on the head. Like I, I was a kid going to the game with my dad on my birthday, like going and watching the games, like like not being able to watch the basketball game in my city would be crazy. Like, how can you not? And so hearing about that, I don't know what's going on and why other people think of it. Like sometimes people think short-term money is more important than long-term. I don't focus on money at all, honestly. And I know it sounds crazy because people say, oh, yeah, but never focused on it. Focus on winning, focus on doing right. And so to me, I think it's the obvious choice. It seems simple to me. Like just put the game on. Like everyone should watch it. Three million households in Arizona are going to watch the games. They're going to become huge Suns fans. Like, well, will that help your merchandise revenue? And maybe, but if not, it's still pretty cool. We got 3 million people watching Booker and Durant and our whole team. Like it's pretty cool. And so like, that's what this is about. It's not about making money always. People so focused, always think about money, money. Like I will just go do good things and have fun and win and succeed. And like I said, money has always followed wherever I've went with those situations. But the reality is I'm just excited to be able to get it out to more fans and uh, make that change as quick as possible. Yeah, I think the finances were, you know, there's some deals like the Lakers. I think it was like a, like a $7 billion deal. I get it. When the money's crazy, I get it. But out here living in LA, the Dodgers weren't on one of the two cable systems for years and years and years, right? And they made more money that way, but I never understood it. I never understood why you'd want to limit your audience and especially limit the audience of, you know, the next generation of fans, the up and comers. And even like you see the stuff the NBA is doing this year where they're, they're making the finals times a little bit earlier, right? It's a small thing, but to me, that it's that stuff that matters, and that's the stuff you have to think about. How are you going to get a nine-year-old fan to stay up till midnight to watch a basketball game? You may not be able to. So I think I'll be interested to see how it works out for you. How do you measure success from that, just from ratings? You know, I measure success from fans, fan experience, making sure that more people, like, how do we make Phoenix Suns the number one uh, you know, we're the biggest fan base, social media following, people following my guys on the team, more players want to come. Like we want to be the elite franchise, right? WNBA Mercury, NBA Suns. And so you got to start by getting more people on your, on your, watching your games, right? And you got to take care of your fans, take care of your players. And so like, there's a lot of measurements, but people making money, the measurement will, will drive you in the wrong direction in almost all parts of life, with your personal life, with your business. If you make money, the goal, you will fail most of the time, make success the goal and money will follow. And, and if it doesn't mm. follow, you still out of hell of time because you won a lot and it's fun to win. I have to ask you about the vote to approve you as the owner was 29 to nothing with one person abstaining, which led me on a whole Google deep dive. And you have this little business rivalry with Dan Gilbert, the Cleveland owner, who decided not to vote. He abstained. He abstained on the vote and it was 29 nothing instead of 30 for nothing, 30 nothing, which got me excited because we haven't had a lot of owner feuds um, in the FBA. Is this a feud? What's going on here? So listen, uh, you know, I can go talk for, for hours on it or I'll talk for a minute and the minute's probably easier is like, he doesn't like me and I don't like him. Right. 
That's how it is. Business, his company used to be number one in mortgage. UWM, my business is number one in mortgage. Um, I don't like the way they do business in a lot of things. He probably doesn't like the way we do things. We're in the same town. We compete. We're winning. That's what it is right now. And the reality is, uh, people ask me what I thought about that. Like, I knew without a question that that'd probably be how he handled it. And the best part is now you get to see who I see. Very simple. You Now you see who I see and what I know about that man. This is great. So are you, so I'm ruling out any Suns Cavaliers trades probably for the next couple of years. I, you know, I won't be calling on the trades, but like I said, I wish them nothing but the best. I have no animosity. The reality is though, don't think we're not competing. And, you know, and I want, I know he's not doing health wise. So I wish him nothing but the best, but the reality is uh, in the mortgage business and now on the basketball floor, whatever it is, I'm trying to win in everything I do. And that's what we're going to be. And if someone does things the wrong way, which he's done, I'm going to call them out on it. And that's what I've done. So if you see him at the owner's meetings, is it like a handshake? Do you avoid each other? What happens? I have no problem shaking anyone's hand anytime, but we we have not. Okay. Well, I'll shake your hand if there's the Celtics Suns finals, if we run into each other courtside. I'm not going to let the Celtics Suns stand between us after. I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm a nice ask, guy. I like to meet everybody. Can I ask you about Bianco Pizza? Do you understand the importance of Bianco Pizzeria in the Phoenix area and how it's the fulcrum of the entire Phoenix culture? I do not know that. Give me, give it to me. All right. That's it. It's the Bianco, Chris Bianco, famous chef. Open a pizza place in Phoenix and revolutionized how we do pizza. And it's a three hour wait and it became a very important uh, home for the Suns. And I think you got to get in there. I think that's, I think that's as important as anything you have to do in the Phoenix area. I'll be there then. I'm going there. I'm going to be in Phoenix in a couple of days to watch our team. So I'll be there. I'll check it out for you. Um, any last things before we go that most shocking thing you learned so far about being an NBA owner that you had no idea? We're like, wow, I can't, I just didn't know this was like this or any piece of that. Honestly, you know what I'll say on, back to your last question is like the NBA owners have been amazing. All the owners, like they actually get along really well and they help each other. Like the, the relationship I've built in the first four months have been phenomenal where they've all reached out, been friendly, helpful, cared. Like you, we compete. They all say, hey, we keep it on the floor, but off the court, we want to grow the game. You know, Adam Silver's done a great job leading. So it was surprising to me to see how well everyone got along. Um, you know, people have been so friendly to me, uh, different owners that I, I never would have known before. And they've reached out to me and been friendly, given me advice. And it's been nothing but great. And so I really love that camaraderie, which has been a huge win for me and a very positive thing. And so I'm very excited to be part of that NBA ownership group with all these great owners. Interesting. I've, I've heard that from other people too. It does seem like a little exclusive club where the, only the people in it kind of understand even stuff like I'm sure you've games Friday and Sunday, right? The whole ticket thing of people asking and hey, like that that becomes its own kind of piece of owning a team, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, the other owners have been like, welcome me to their arena. I welcome them to my arena. Haven't like you, you actually get along in a really great way and they give advice to me and I'm I'm still new. I'm learning, but it's been great. So I I that's been the best part of being a new owner is how great the other owners are and how much time I've enjoyed spending with the ones I've got to, and the more I will over time. Um, I won't ask for you for your feelings about Jokic. He's just a good basketball player. Tough, I, tough I, to go I, in a playoff series against that dude, right? He's a great basketball player. You know, I think we got he's great basketball He's unbelievable. You know, it's going to be a heck of a series. I think we're, you know, we're down 2-0, but uh, I, I believe in our guys, and we're coming back on Friday and, and hopefully compete at the highest level. Um, thank you for the time. 
I I wish you the best of luck. I really like those Phoenix fans, and I was psyched that uh, they ended up with an owner who seems to be thinking about things the right way. But good luck with everything. I'm excited to see how it turns out. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. All right, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay, that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. This episode is brought to you by Taco Bell. If you're anything like me during a busy day at work, I need lunch that is just as fresh as it is delicious and easy. And the all new Cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell is exactly that, made with high quality ingredients like seasoned slow roasted chicken, pico de gallo, shredded purple cabbage, and avocado verde salsa sauce. The new Cantina chicken tacos, burrito, and quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina chicken menu at Taco Bell now. All right, we're taping this part of the podcast a little past noon Pacific time. Chris Mannix is here, our old friend. Um, we're going to talk a little boxing later. Got to get some Tank Davison. Talk Celtics to start. A tumultuous, traumatic, horrifying 24-hour stretch of Boston sports. The Bruins blowing at game seven at home. Best record regular season of all time, allegedly, because they counted overtime wins. And they lose in overtime. And then the next day, Celtics, 10-point favorites against a Joel Embiid-less Philadelphia 76ers. And they just mail it in defensively. I don't know what was happening. Offensively looked great. But um, this this game shown a big spotlight for me, Mannix, on all the things that worry me about this team. Right? Not a lot of toughness. End of the game stuff. Coaching adjustment adjustments. And you you watch them lose to a Philly team that they're just way more talented than in a game one where it's just like, grab their throat, step on their head, that's it. And they do the opposite. What was your read? What worries you about this team? You think about the Philly matchup, um, even when MB, if Embiid was healthy, I would favor would have favored the Celtics because for the last three Me or four too. years, they've owned, owned the Sixers. I mean, it was just like a month ago, maybe less, that Embiid needed 50 just to beat the Celtics by a bucket at home. And so I, I thought this was a great matchup for the Celtics. Like everybody else, I thought Embiid out, you know, depending on how long, this could be a really short series. But watching, and let's start with the perimeter defense because this is supposedly the strength of the Celtics, right? Like I, yeah. I stood in front of the locker of Marcus Smart after game two of the Atlanta series and was talking to Marcus about you know, the backcourt defense. And he said, look, our three guards, himself, White, and Brogdon, are the best defensive trio in the NBA. And then really from game two on that Atlanta series, they've been getting torched. Like, Trey Young started going nuts, and now you have game one of the Sixers series 
where you've got a Harden, Tyrese Maxey, and Anthony Melton, of all people, going for like 88 combined points. It was wild, you know, watching these guys. And, you know, that to me is like a big fuck you to the Celtics defensive guys in the backcourt, you know, to Smart and to White and to Brogdon. Like these guys, look, Smart, defensive player of the year last year. White, probably going to make first or second all defensive team this year. Brogdon, big body, has been a sturdy defender in the past. And they had nothing. They had nothing against Harden. Harden, a lot of times, like there was some pick and roll situations. They were doing some things, but he's an isolation player. And he was just facing up and beating them a lot of times uh, in that game. So to me, this began with an absolute failure on on the defensive level in the backcourt. We can get into Joe Mazzulla's decision-making. We can get into... Oh, we will. I I also, Bill, I had to go look this up. Like, I, I... Jalen Brown's attempting 10 shots was incredible, right? Like you, Jalen Brown, the games he's attempted 10 shots or fewer, it's because they've been a blowout and he's only played 25 minutes or it's because he played, you know, 18 minutes in a game he got hurt in. In games that Jalen Brown plays 35, 40 minutes and he played 42 in game one, he's upwards of 20, 25 shots. In that Atlanta series, he averaged 10 shots or 20 shots per game. In this game one, he puts up 10, and it wasn't like he was missing. He was 8 for 10. Like, he right. was playing great. Like, I, I want to know more about why Jalen Brown only took 10 shots in this game. Went to the free throw line four times, so it wasn't like he, he was getting shots up and getting to the line. He just stopped shooting for some reason, or they stopped getting in the ball. And that was, I think, devastating for the Celtics offense. He kept turning the ball over, too. Yeah, Four turnovers. Um, Smart had six. They're too sloppy with the ball. The, this has been all year with Brown. Like, he'll, he'll just throw the ball to the every, other team every once in a while or dribble the ball off his foot. And Smart, you know, if you remember Emei last year, who we're going to talk about, um, he just wouldn't put up with the Smart sloppiness. He was like, you're just not going to play if you don't take care of the ball. And if you're not just, I want to see your assist turnover thing be five to one, four to one, whatever. And if you're going to fuck around out there, I'm going to take you out. And Smart really respected it. And that was the best ball he's played of his entire career last year. Now it's just sloppy. The team looks sloppy. I'm glad you brought up the guards because this also ties into the coaching adjustments, right? Especially last play, Tatum's at the line. They're down one. Tatum's an unbelievable free throw shooter. He's probably going to make both. Why aren't you going small at that point? If you're going to switch on everything, why not put White, Brogdon, and Smart out there with Brown and Tatum? And now all five guys can guard Harden. Um, it's just like basic coaching adjustment. Why is the final play of the game when you need a basket going to smart? You know, why, why is he involved? He, he is in your top eight, the worst offensive player out of the eight. So why is he even involved in the play much less you're running it for him? Um, I, I thought it was alarming. And the fact that Tatum had 39 and didn't even remotely seem like the best player on the floor kind of fits into the discussion too, right? Where Tatum, I voted for him first team all NBA. I thought he was the second best forward in the league. Me too. But there's been some mano a mano situations this year where he's just gotten beat. Harden last night was the best guy on the court. He was unbelievable. And I know we're going to talk about him. But uh, that was kind of one of those games where you're like, all right, Jason, you're first team all NBA. Like this guy's kicking our ass at home. Where are you? What are you going to do? And they, as usual, just fell apart down the stretch. You saw some of the crunch time stats, right? Yeah, they were like, bad. Well, they just really like for bad. the playoffs in general, um, there was an account. I followed this account, Boston Sports Info. 
I mean, what a shocker. I follow that account. Um, and he had all the crunch time stats the last two seasons, playoffs, three minutes or less remaining in the fourth quarter OT, plus or minus five points. You tell me if this makes sense. Marcus Smart has taken as many field goals in that situation in the playoffs the last two years as Tatum and Brown. They each have 15. Smart is three for 15, shooting 25%. And Jalen is three for five, and Tatum is two for six. So he's taken more than both of them combined. How does that make sense? It shouldn't happen. Um, the last play, last offensive play of the game, I just want to know what the play was. Like, it couldn't possibly have been for a Marcus Smart high post catch and drive on James Harden. That could not possibly. Um, <laughs> remarkably, like if Smart had taken that shot and kind of dipped his shoulder and put it up, like I wouldn't have had too much of a problem with it because Harden's a minus defender and, and yeah. Smart's actually pretty good at kind of getting the ball up on the rim and, and having some good things happen when those type of shots go up. But then he tries to thread the needle between two defenders and get the ball to Tatum, who had no expectation, I think, at that point, of getting the ball. Right. Uh, so I, I just want to know what that play was or what it was supposed to be at the end of the game. But that was one coaching faux pas. Not going small, you're right, was another. Like th Al Horford's had a great season, but against Paul Reed, he's he's not necessary in those situations. Like Paul they have Reed's no post-up guy. Who's, nah, who's going to make the make us hurt? Heard a small lineup on that team. Nobody. No, nah, in the in the final few minutes, and I know they trust Horford implicitly. He's a great team defender. All those things. But in the final few minutes, when you know they're going to be setting screens for Harden and begging you to switch, you've got to get your most versatile lineup out there. And without Joel Embiid on the floor, you don't need to have Al Horford out there for those types of possessions. I was equally concerned in the first half, though, like. Did the Celtics not think that the Sixers might try a zone in that in that situation? Like, w without their big man, I know the Sixers don't play zone with Embiid out there. Why would you? But without Embiid on the floor, they're going to try a lot of junk defenses. And sure enough, in the first half, when the Celtics start to cook, the Sixers put a junk defense out there, and Boston just doesn't look like they know how to deal with it. That's when they start to slow down yeah. some offensively. So there were just some... A lack of adjustments really hurt this team from the rotation to end-of-game situations and not having a a counter to when the Sixers went with that junk zone. The inability to ad-lib during these games has been the most appalling piece of the Missoula season. Like, mm -hmm. whether you think he's learning on the job, um, he got thrown into this, we should give him a learning curve, all that stuff. He just can't adjust during the games. And yesterday's a great example. Like, all right, Harden's feeling it. All they have to do is take out Harden. Like, P.J. Tucker played 37 minutes. He didn't shoot a, a field goal. He was zero for zero. <laughs> right? So, all right, they, they're four and five offensively, and we have to take out Harden. How do we do that? Whatever the strategy was, was the wrong strategy. Um, even in the last play when Harden, you knew he was going to get a screen with Horford on him. Maybe that's the time you send Tucker's guy flying over to double team him. Can can we have PJ Tucker hit a shot? He's zero for zero. He's been out there for two hours. Can he let's have him decide the game? Why is James Harden deciding the game? But you know, as you know, my dad goes to these games and he sits close to the Celtics bench and he came on and talked about this a few weeks ago. He thinks Missoula looks overwhelmed during these games. He's watched a lot of coaches. We've seen some really shaky Celtics coaches. We were going in the 70s when Dave Cowens was a player coach. 
We were there for ML Carr, who had no idea what he was doing as a coach. We were there for Patino when the whole team had quit on him, right? You go on down the line, even like Brad's last season, when it was clear like the team had kind of just tuned him out. And you can see stuff from the sideline. And, you know, what my dad sees is, is Missoula just seems overwhelmed sitting there. And it looks that way on TV too. And then you look at the lack of adjustments and it's all the same theme. And one one thing to remember with Joe Missoula is if and when there are moments he feels overwhelmed, he has no one really to turn to on that bench. I mean, that bench, you know, lacked a former head coach presence already, but, you know, continued to be gutted during the season when Damon Stoudemire left. They never replaced Joe Missoula. They tried to hire Frank Vogel. Frank wasn't interested in an assistant coaching gig at that time. When I saw Steven Silas in Boston uh, sitting with Brad Stevens before one of the practices, before uh, one of the games, I, I was thinking to myself, like, can he start now? Like, can, can he just, you know, they're probably going to hire him next year. Can he yeah. start now and, and be a voice alongside Joe Mazzula with some experience there? Like, they've got some quality coaches on that staff, but nobody with the gravitas that's been there before like virtually every other young coach has on his staff. Remember, for years, Brad Stevens could turn to Ron Adams next to him. He had some other guys along the way that were were useful in that row. Joe doesn't have that at this point. So I don't even blame him for being a little overwhelmed. I mean, it's an overwhelming situation. He's 33 years old and did a, a, a very good job during the year. But we have to remember, he's 33 years old with no coaching experience at this level. And now nobody on his staff he can really turn to. It's a huge mistake. I'm so glad you brought it up. Like even you met you mentioned Ron Adams. When Steve Kerr started that Warriors job, he'd never coached before. He had Ron Adams and Alvin Gentry. He had both of them. You know, and and like that's the guy they're missing is the the guy who's been an assistant and maybe a former coach for 20 years, who's kind of seen it all, the sounding board guy. It's kind of unbelievable that they didn't hire that person or at least try to grab him during the year or, or some older coach who got phased out. I, I don't know. Do you, was there anybody else beside Vogel that they went after? I, I think they talked to a few people, but Vogel was the guy I think Brad Stevens really wanted on that staff. And, you know, I, I, it just Vogel, it was just not in the position at that point to want to take another job and want you to want to leave it. LA either. Yeah. I, yeah. Look, I, I think maybe Frank Vogel, you know, probably thought a good way to stick it to the Lakers might be winning a championship with the Celtics. So, I mean, that that maybe crossed his mind during that process, but I don't think he, he ever, I, yeah, I don't think he ever really strongly uh, considered it. And look, having those guys is not an acknowledgement of what you lack. I mean, God, remember Larry Bird in his early years with Indiana? Like, did, oh, Larry, yeah. ever, did Larry ever speak in the huddles? Like, it was... Offense, Rick Carlisle, defense, Dick Harder, or vice versa. I forget which one it is at this point. But Larry would often just kind of sit there, and Rick would say his thing, and Dick would say his thing, and Larry would just kind of be the guy who brought brought it all kind of together at the very end. It's not an admission of weakness to bring in people with more institutional knowledge than you. And I, I do think, whether it's this series or another one in these playoffs, that's something that could loom, loom large for them. It'd be like if Belichick had a defensive assistant as his offensive coordinator. Like sometimes don't swim, don't swim against the stream for what works in basketball. Um, let's take a quick break and then I want to dive into this series more and talk Phoenix Denver. 
This episode is brought to you by Peloton. Spring, the best time of the year to dial your fitness routine up a notch. You know it's going to happen. It's going to get warm. You're going to start wearing shorts. You're going to start wearing bathing suits. You're just You're not going to be able to cover up behind those big coats anymore. Also, it's nice outside. Get outside. Do stuff. Or if you don't have time to get outside, I got Peloton for you. Whether you have five or 60 minutes, Peloton's workouts were made to challenge you. Classes like boot camps, full body strength, boxing, marathon training are created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in and you won't feel bad about not being outside. Peloton's expert coaches, challenging classes, and nonstop vibes will keep you coming back for more. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I understand that some things you just want to keep private. Maybe it's something you don't want anyone to know, or maybe you think it's something minor, so why bother? But if you keep everything bottled up, if you let those emotions sit there and fester, it could be really, really bad from you. Sometimes it depends on what kind of family you're from. Like my dad's family is one of those. They bottle everything up, bottle everything up, and then they all just get mad at each other. Listen, talking things through is more helpful than you think. If you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend some therapy. Think about the things you can get out of therapy. First of all, a sounding board. You can learn better coping skills. You can learn how to set some boundaries, maybe how to empower yourself a little better day to day. And if you want to give therapy a try, well, I have an answer. BetterHelp, a convenient and flexible way since it's entirely online right now. It's easy to get started too. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Bill Simmons today to get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Bill Simmons. All right, Mannix, fundamentally, we sure this team, this Celtics team has it? No. It's, it's a feeling I've had for months that they're missing something. And it's a combination. If I had to do like a pie chart, what is the Celtics team missing? There's a toughness piece that I think it's missing. And I think I think they were definitely missing it last year too. And you saw Draymond exploit it. I don't know if that piece has necessarily gotten better. It's a really, it's a great group of guys, right? Really respectful character guys. And I'm not saying they need to go out and get Dylan Brooks, but does this team need, you know, you watch PJ Tucker last night. He did like, what, seven illegal things during that game? Like he, oh, he accidentally hit Tatum in the balls. Did he? Was it accidental? I don't know. He's setting screens, sticking his leg out. He's he's undercutting people on rebounds. Like he was, his physicality was there. You watched Lowry on Sunday against the Knicks, like just took over that game psychologically, all the stuff he was doing. Smart used to be the guy who did this stuff on the Celtics team. And he's, and it's not happening this year. Like you think like Smart versus Harden, there was that famous Houston Celtics game a few years ago when he goaded Harden into that charge and he really rose to the occasion against Harden. And that was one of the things I thought last night, oh my God, he's going to do all the Marcus stuff against Harden. And it's like, he's at a different phase of his career now. So I guess I'd start there. Does Is this team missing a toughness that you need to win four rounds? Let me say this first. There's no way PJ Tucker did that accidentally. You'll never get me to believe that. I, I've watched that a dozen times. That's how now. I felt as like, well. There's no way. He swings the right arm and maybe he didn't mean to connect exactly where he did, but he he meant to do something there. I'd I'd be surprised if the NBA wasn't taking a pretty long look at it uh right now uh in Agreed. the league office. Um 
it's hard to say that they're missing that when it comes to needing it to win a championship because they showed really good mental toughness in the conference playoffs last year. Like, regardless of Middleton being out, being down 3-2 against Milwaukee and having Tatum go nuts in Game 6 and Grant Williams go nuts in Game 7. That's a guy they're missing. Whatever happened to him, he's someone they they Mm. need. And then, look, going down to Miami and winning a Game 7 against Jimmy Butler and that team takes a certain level of mental toughness. So when I think about the reasons they lost to Golden State in the finals, like toughness isn't among the top three reasons to me. I think exhaustion was probably one of it. Inexperience was another one. Uh, I don't think they needed to go out and get that guy. I think maybe Marcus Smart could do more of that with this team because he really is the only one on that roster kind of built for that. But I don't think they necessarily need it. I, I just think they have they've had it on cruise control really since opening night. Like, they picked up from game six of the NBA Finals to game one of the regular season in a good way. They kept all the momentum they built from January on of last season and was and were able to roll through. A few bumps along the way, January, February, some stuff came up. But they've just never really had to overcome real adversity up at this point. They never had to deal with on a coaching level, on a leadership level. They never had to do that you know, with this group. And now, now they may have to. Like, you know, this this game too is, it's, it's kind of the ball game here. Like, I don't think they're winning four out of five against Philadelphia. Now I think we're going to see if that same mental toughness that existed when Ime Udoka was the coach, when they were coming back against Milwaukee, beating Miami. Now is the first time all season long, I think, that we're going to see if that mental toughness is actually there. Well, that's why I brought up the toughness thing. Because they don't have Ime Adoka anymore. Yeah. And I felt like he was the toughest guy on that whole team last year. And I watched it. I saw it in person. Like, he really held those guys accountable. He would get really mad when they drifted through certain stretches. I mean, they had the same end-of-the-game crunch time stuff issues last year that they're having this year. Um, But I did think that he added a certain element that is missing now. Um, But the crunch time stuff, look, the Sixers are an atrocious, atrocious transition defense team. If you were going to say, why are the Celtics going to win this series, Embiid or no Embiid, you would start with the Celtics are too fast for the Sixers. They're just going to run them into the ground and they have too many guys to throw at Harden. And those would be the two reasons, right? Well, they were running for three periods yesterday, got to that fourth quarter, and um, things slowed down like they often do with the Celtics. Incredible for Philly. Like, oh, cool, you're going to slow things down. That's great. Our best player can, you know, is hasn't run back for de- on defense for this entire game. You're going to slow things down for him? Awesome. And they've never been able to balance that, ooh, it's nut crunch time, but we should still attack. Then it slows. And it's like you see Tatum dribbling the ball over midcourt with 17 seconds left in the shot clock already. Now we're getting into a set. Now there's eight seconds. Oh, I wonder what's going to happen. It's going to be... I, we've been watching this for too long and it it just doesn't seem like they're going to change at this point. And I think the, like, I look, I look at a team like Denver, who we're going to talk about in a second. They're so purposeful. They can play both styles, right? They, they love to run, but if you slow it down, now they have this, the Jokic, who's the greatest cheat code in the league right now. And they're always going to get good shots. The Celtics sometimes get good shots. But you saw last night that stretched out the last three minutes. How many bad things happened? 
right? Like the Brogdon pass, terrible shots, turnovers in the paint. This is kind of who they are in some of these games. It's it's depressing. Yeah, and I keep going back to, to Jalen Brown. There was a sequence, I think it was like three and a half, four minutes left in the game when Jalen Brown had the ball in transition and he just kind of pulled stopped. it back. Yeah, he yeah. pulled it back, which like, you know, I, I'm, I'm half kidding, but it's like, was Jalen Brown, you know, protesting something or on strike, you know, during the second half of this game? He had a quote after the game where somebody asked him about this and he said, I wanted to make sure my teammates were running with me. And, and I'm just reading that. I'm like, what, what does that even what does mean? That mean? I, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Like you're eight for 10. Like you're, you're the, the all NBA guy, you know, probably like you, you've got to be more assertive in these situations, force transition at times. I know a lot of times they're taking the ball out of the bucket because Harden was out of his mind, but like <laughs> the fact that he took 10 shots, Bill, and that and it made eight of them. And that was it in 42 minutes, 42 minutes of this guy he takes 10 shots was wild to me. That was the most wild statistic of that entire game was that Jalen Brown wasn't more served. He's got to be that guy. Like, you know, he and the people around him have been campaigning all year long to have him on the All-NBA team. He's got to be an All-NBA player in those moments. It can't just be Tatum. You can't be inbounding the ball to Smart. You've got to take advantage of these matchups because, I mean, not only is Philly bad in transition, without Embiid in there, they're pretty bad defensively, period. Like, you can Yeah, they can't protect the rim at all. So, no, like, Jalen Brown needs to be aggressive. It's ridiculous. We we should mention, I mean, to be fair, Harden was incredible yesterday. And yeah. I thought he had a burst that I haven't seen from him really since February. Um, he had the he was he doing that yo-yo thing at the top of the key. And he was able to finish around the basket and make plays in a way that we just haven't seen in a while. With that said, they have so many guys to throw at him. And it, you know, another really disappointing thing for me about yesterday's game was like Part of the game plan should be like, we just have more guys in this team, right? So if Harden's going to dribble the ball up, let's hound him full court. Let's just put, let's put some miles on him. Let's have him burn some calories. Let's, let's, let's put some pressure on his legs. Let's make it at least a little hard for him. Let's make him break a sweat. And they basically let him do whatever he wanted offensively. And then defensively, you know, he wasn't running back anyway and they stopped running. So that helped them too. It's just, there was no gamesmanship with this. That and that part really concerns me. And the other thing, which we haven't talked about yet, is there's like some small underlying stuff with this team that nothing major, right? But like you mentioned, the Jalen 10 shots thing. There's, there's a sometimes it'll be a Tatum game and sometimes it'll be a Jalen game and one guy will back. Like they've never totally figured out the seesaw with that. Um, Jalen's had just a weird energy this whole season. There's been multiple moments with him where it's like, do you want to be here? Do you like it here? Is this is this a good situation for you? I have no idea what the effects of the KD trade rumors and the EMA situation was with him. You have the smart situation where in various points this year, White and Brogdon were just playing way better than him. And Missoula, I think, was really afraid to not have Smart be the crunch time guy. That manifested itself in the Hawks series. Last. Now White's not playing well. Have you noticed that part? Yeah. Whatever's going on with that white Brogdon smart thing, it's now affecting white and white is starting to look like 2022 finals white a little bit. I was going to say round one white of last year. Remember round oh, one, that, it, it yeah. was like, it was like, is he playable in these? He was too timid. He wasn't physical. Like after round one of last year, he kind of became that guy. But 
I, look, and then, I agree. It, then it veered back the other way. So yeah, I mean, yeah so that that whole those three guys that Brogdon finishes crunch time yesterday, but White was the third best player in the team this year. Like there's, I, so you have that, and then the Rob Al Horford. How much do we get out of Rob? How do we not? And then the Grant Williams thing is also weird. Who yeah. just doesn't play anymore? Yeah, they, they've they've waved the white flag. It seems on Grant Williams. Well, you know what I was hearing when I was in Boston was when Grant wasn't playing that Atlanta series was, well, he's going to play against Philly when Embiid's out there. You know, he can be another body to throw at him. He can space the floor uh, when Embiid's out there. So maybe if Embiid comes back, we'll see more out of Grant Williams. The Jalen stuff that you mentioned, like, unquestionably, from what I was told, the Kevin Durant trade rumors from last summer bothered Jalen a lot more than previous trade rumors did. Because, look, it's understandable. He just led the team to the finals. He was probably the Celtics' best player in the finals. And now we're back to this, where you're going to trade me, even for a player the caliber of Kevin Durant. From what I was and, told... And nobody were, and nobody coming out and saying, hey, those rumors are bullshit. We're not no, trading Jalen Brown. And look, this, this, from what I was told, this was something... These were fires, of fire, I should say, that Brad Stevens and Ime Udoka at the time had to put out. Like, this was something they had to address with him uh, specifically, uh, the, the stuff with Jason, like previous iterations of the Celtics co- coaching staff would, would joke with me a little bit about this. Like the, the, your turn, my turn stuff was most prevalent in January when both these guys were trying to make all-star team, right? Like they both mm. wanted to be on it, but usually after the all-star, you know, uh, voting came out, they would be much more on the same page. And I think that's, there's truth to that because if you look at, especially last season when they, they seem to be at least in the Eastern conference playoffs, in much better sync than they've been yep. in years past. Uh, but now you're right. Like game one, at least was, all right, it's the Jason Tatum show in this one. And Jalen's going to get his shots and transition every so often, but not be proactive in chasing it again. He took 20 shots per game in that Hawks series, yeah. 20 shots. And he took half that in game one. He doesn't have to be 20, 25 every night, but he's got to be between 15 and 20 for this team. I think to have the kind of balance it needs to beat a good team like Philadelphia. Yeah, the vibe is just off. I was, I, I got to say, I'm really shocked by basketball in the playoffs because the three-point variance, anybody could beat anybody. Celtics were 10-point favorites. Like, yeah, you put them in a parlay or whatever, but you should always know, like, hey, Philly could just make 23s. You never know. The, the way Harden asserted himself in that game, I was not prepared for. That was like a best player on the floor game. And Tatum couldn't totally match it. And... Now, if I'm Philly, like, you know, Embiid, they they said he has this injury that's normally four to six weeks. So you figure he'll probably be back second half of the series. And you got to wonder, like, it was kind of fun to watch this version of the Philly team. I wonder, one of the best cases for the Celtics in this series is when Embiid does come back, now it's going to be that same kind of seesaw where it's like, well, wait, the Harden show is kind of working. You also have Harden basically playing for a new contract or new extension. He's got something to prove. So uh, there's just a lot of soap opera subplots all the way around. Not to it, mention Doc Rivers out coaching the Celtics coach in a playoff game. Everybody kept calling it Houston Harden uh, last night. Like that's four year contract Harden. Like that. That's oh, yeah. that's a guy. Like when he's barking at the crowd. Like I'm assuming he's looking at Daryl Morey there. You know, saying like, you know, write the check. You know, pay me the money. That's that's that was the version of Harden I thought I saw. Uh, last night. But I'm curious to see what Embiid has when he comes back. You know, I I was talking to people around him last week and 
You know, I, you know, Embiid plays through a lot. People kind of say, oh, he's yeah. always injured, but he plays through so much pain, hand injuries, knee injuries. Like he's, he's constantly out there whenever he can. And, you know, when I was asking about kind of what he was going through, you know, as, this is last week, uh, but it, it wasn't so much about pain when running. It was pain when walking. Like he was dealing with a lot of real pain, you know, during that week off that, that Philadelphia had. So even when he comes back, I'm just skeptical he's going to be the same kind of mobile guy that we're used to seeing. And if he isn't, that's something the Celtics can attack, especially defensively. Like he's a monster defensively when healthy, but if he's not able to move around or chase Al Horford out there or move around with Rob Williams, that's something the Celtics can exploit if he's less than hundred percent. Yeah. And there's a chance this series plays out like the Suns Clippers series did where, Oh my God, I can't believe game one. And then the Suns win in five, but you still leave the series going, Hmm. I don't, I don't, not positive about this team. Um, the thing in the Celtics' favor, if you're talking injured Embiid, the rest of this Philly team, what we're watching in Miami and New York, like from a talent standpoint, it's no contest. They have the most talent in the East. Um, and I was just, I think the most disappointing thing is just take care of business game one and just set the tone and you're in the unbelievable, unbelievable driver's seat, right? On the flip side, what's waiting for them in, on the West side with if the Lakers can somehow keep AD and LeBron relatively healthy, um, the versatility of that roster. I'm still incredibly dubious AD and LeBron will play through my rounds. But then when I'm watching from Denver, um, they go up 2-0 last night. I just thought this was a really underrated team heading into the playoffs. I think people just got bored. Um, they didn't look great the last month, but the home court matters so much for them. And Jokic is the best player in the league, um, at least offensively. But I, I think he's the most day-to-day, impactful, reliable, whatever you want. And I don't know if the Celtics would beat them. I, don't, I just don't yeah. trust it. I don't I don't trust the matchup and the consistency of the Celtics versus Denver right now, unless there's some sort of dramatic, you know, I don't know, breakthrough. And maybe that game will cause it, but... I like Denver the most right now is my long-winded point. Where, who do you like the most right now? I still like Boston the most right now. E- really? Even, a- okay. even after that egg. I mean, they they laid a comparable egg in game five against Atlanta. Um, I- I'm going to be of the belief they'll figure it out. And with Embiid's issues, I think they'll beat Philadelphia. And I favor them against whoever comes out of New York uh, against Miami. I-, I-, I don't... Look, I was impressed with Denver, but I was never big on Phoenix. I, I never believed this was the Suns' year because... You just don't make a trade of that magnitude and change things as considerably as they did and expect to get it together in a couple of months to be able to beat top-tier playoff teams. And on top of that, they trade for Kevin Durant, and he goes out five minutes later for three or four weeks. So I, I just never thought they'd have the kind of chemistry you need to have. Like, they need one more transaction cycle this summer to bring guys in that makes sense around them. They need a full training camp of all these guys to figure out how they want to play, how Durant and Booker play off each other, how Chris Paul fits into the mix, how, you know, Josh Okogie fits into the mix. Right now, they're a team that, like, unless Booker and Durant go absolutely crazy, which they did, you know, in the Fina, in the Clippers series at times, unless they go nuts, who else are you relying on? Like, I'm watching Josh Okogie pass up on, like, you know, four-foot, you know, runners. I, I'm, you know, Chris Paul before the injury just doesn't look fully comfortable taking those catch and shoot three pointers. Like this, this team is not where it probably can be at this time next year. Whereas you look at Denver, 
And like they're just like seamless. Like they're playing off each other. Jokic knows where where Murray's going to be. He knows where Porter Jr. is going to be. KCP is defending. Like they they just they're a well-oiled machine. And the only way they're going to be beat is if they play another well-oiled machine. Maybe that happens before the the NBA Finals. Maybe if Golden State beats the Lakers, that might be the type of team that gives them problems. But I think the Celtics are every bit as good as Denver, probably better. Um, and I just I don't I don't think Denver's had its true test yet because I don't think the Suns, because of everything that's transpired in the last couple of months, are yeah. where they're eventually going to be. Clippers have to be just kicking themselves. Yeah. If they had had their whole team, maybe that was the team, but this is the NBA. Every year you can do what if, and what if this guy, the Bucks, <laughs> Sitting back. <laughs> well, the thing with the Bucks, I guess, thinking about it, having some distance from it is, you know, they're kind of in a similar spot that Phoenix was in. They're just playing a lot of dudes who weren't very good. Yeah. You know, once you got past their first three and a half, dropped off a cliff, like Crowder couldn't even play for them. You know, and they, the, you move into that Wes Matthews, Grayson Allen, like it just always seemed like there were two guys out there that you couldn't trust at all. That's one of the reasons if you're going to make the case for the Celtics team, they, their top eight is really good, right? Like how many guys of that of the Phoenix kind of role player dudes would even play one minute for the Celtics team? Whereas like Grant Williams would probably play big minutes for Phoenix, mm-hmm. you know? So I the depth of the Celtics and then the Tatum-Brown thing, it's going to come down with the Celtics, what it always comes down to. Can Tatum levitate in in those waters with the Giannis, Curry, Jokic, with those guys, right? He was able to do it in Milwaukee in that game six. Couldn't really match the Curry stuff. Couldn't match Harden last night. Can he consistently levitate in those waters? The Warriors knew they have you know, they go into that game seven, like, we have Curry. He's going to show up. We have this. This guy will be awesome. Denver, any big game will be like, we know what Jokic is going to do 27, 14, and eight. Like, just that's the fucking floor for a big mm-hmm. Jokic game. And Tatum, we'll see. We'll see how they respond in game two. I think the Boston fans are a little restless these days. <laughs> I wonder why. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of shit going on. I got to tell a story about my dad. My dad decided to go to Europe with my stepmother and wanted to do it earlier in the, in the Celtics Bruins playoff thing. So he went on, on Saturday and middle of the night was the Bruins game. Middle of the night was Celtic game. He woke up consecutive nights in Spain with the Bruins losing an OT and then the Celtics <laughs> losing. He was like, oh, this is great. I'm missing those two Philly games, but there's no Embiid. I'll just sell the tickets and just like double gut punches. Now I'm worried my dad might not make it home. I don't I don't know. He's like 50-50 if they keep having these gut punches. Uh, there's not a lot for him to come back to if they, they lose game two. <laughs> I mean, no, they're seriously, not, they're not recovering that. By the way, who who signs Dylan Brooks? Have you had this conversation yet? Who's Who's... Have not had it yet. Who, um, who is this? Who is the top suitor? Can we just say like that? Memphis, Memphis is showing its image, its own immaturity. I think to to tell Dylan Brooks that they're not going to bring him back, and I forget the phrasing under any circumstances. Um, that's a young front office, and it is a young front office. Well, so the but, play, so what I, what I'm hearing from the Memphis from. The counter of that is that that was not something they said that that was the agent trying to make them look bad. So that that would be sure. a, he said he well, said she said it, game from does now on. Does it matter? 
like they they made it clear to him though i'm sure that he wasn't going to yes. be back when why why do that like why yeah why not wait till june why, or july why on may 1st or whenever that meeting took place why why do that and if you're going to do that you better have a damn good plan to get og ananobi or to get one of the wings in brooklyn because as frustrating as dylan brooks was in that series and i was at those laker games uh, mm. David Roddy ain't it. Uh, Zaire Williams ain't it. Like, How about Santi Aldama? Santi Aldama ain't it. Like, this is a league where if you don't have plus wing defenders, you're not winning anything. You're winning yep. nothing. And whatever Dylan Brooks's warts are, and he was 23% from three against the Lakers, he was abysmal. Like, and he has to control the shot selection. He's like a souped up version of Marcus Smart in a way. Um, whatever his warts are the guy can defend he, he wasn't on either of my all defensive teams but he was close to make this the second one um and guys like that they don't grow on trees so if you go into next year with just david roddy and zaire and and some of these other plug and play guys that aren't the ananobis or the uh finney smiths or the mikhail bridges of the world you're in trouble you're gonna take a step back because you had a knee-jerk reaction to to Dylan Brooks's antics in one series. And look, I, I I do believe, and I have been told this during the year, that they had had discussions with Dylan Brooks about a contract extension. So if, if you believed he was worth keeping around in January, February, or whenever those talks took place, uh, you, you really want to react that quickly to what happened in one series? I, the guy's 27, who shot 33% from three during the regular season. That's not terrible. Like, that's not good, yeah. but that's not terrible. Uh, I, I just thought that whole story was wild. Moving on, however they did it from Dylan Brooks this early, to me, and, and it's not a good bargaining position either, Bill. Like, at least if you're trying to make a trade for the deadline, you know, teams might think, or before the draft, teams might think, well, they they might not need this guy. They can just re-sign Dylan Brooks. Well, they just said they're not going to do it. That's out there that they're not going to do it. I just thought that whole the whole way that played out was really strange. Yeah, and there maybe there's more going on behind the scenes during the year that hasn't come out yet. But I agree with you. Like if if you knew in February you weren't bringing him back, then you got to trade him in February with one of your picks and try to get a better wing. And they he wasn't even from what we were hearing. Like was it wasn't like they were shopping that around. They were not. They were just trying um, to use some of the younger guys yeah. to get Ananobi and Bridges, but the asking prices were astronomical at that point. And by the way, they're going to be astronomical again. Like it's not like those price tags are going down this summer for either of those two guys. Well, I mentioned, we, Russell and I talked about this Sunday, how I thought it was kind of telling that they didn't do anything, which, which told me that they thought their problems were a little deeper and that a run was not that realistic this year anyway. And they just said, fuck it, we'll wait till the summer. But my two predictions for Dylan Brooks, the Dallas um, sign and trade for Tim Hardaway and then putting the Dylan Brooks, Kyrie backcourt and Dallas talking themselves that he's been in some big games. He's a great defender. We already have Kyrie. We're like, why not? Let's just get crazier. I could see that. Um, I could also see a sign and trade with Brooklyn where him and Dinwiddie are the backcourt, which would be the backcourt in hell. If you were in hell and just had to watch basketball, watch those two guys dribbling for 20 seconds, the jacking up 20 footers. Uh, but I do think he'll end up being a sign and trade guy would be my guess. Because who has cap space? It's all the young teams. They're not, no, it's not like Charlotte's going to be cool. Let's bring in Dylan Brooks for, for our culture. It's going to be a veteran team or a team with good players 
that's a wing defender away and talks themselves into it. How about right? Miami? Miami would be another one. Heat, yeah. Let's heat culture them up. We'll put a heat culture costume on them. They could use, you know, every time you see kind of Duncan Robinson running around there defensively or Tyler Hero before him, like, you know, they could use a defensive-minded wing. And I could see him finding his way down there and the Heat being aggressive at trying to get a guy at a relatively bargain basement price. That, to me... That that feels like a front runner right now for. Dylan I'm glad Brooks. you brought. I'm glad you brought up Memphis though because I thought the whole thing was handled really strangely, and I think in general their whole year, the whole Jaw thing of Jaw went away to get some help for what six days and then came back and he's like I'm good now. Like what? I still don't know what happened, and we're not allowed to question anything about superstar athletes anymore. But did the guy have a problem? He didn't have a problem. He just went to a couple meetings. Like was he in rehab? Did they rush him back too soon? Why did they make it seem like everything was good a week later? I thought the whole thing was just bonkers. And then the fact that they couldn't curb some of the on-court behavior and some of the, you know, like, why are you feuding with LeBron James? What's, you may as well feud with Beyonce at that point. It's just <laughs> idiotic. What else did you see from in person with the Lakers? How'd you feel about how, because uh, I went to game four, how'd you feel about, uh, how LeBron was moving around and like what kind of state he's in at this point in his career. I thought he looked old at times during the series. Um, and that probably worries me the most going into this Warriors series because, you know, I assume that LeBron will open up on Draymond Green. And you, you look at that and you say, all right, well, Draymond's a non-shooter, but Draymond's involved in everything. He's got his yeah. hand in everything they do offensively. So LeBron is going to have to be active and on his toes a lot defensively in this series. And yeah, the whole series, all, the whole all series. six, and seven I, games, I whatever, you know, you never put anything past the guy. I mean, after looking like a zombie in game five against Memphis, he comes back nine for 13 reverse dunk in the third quarter, all this energy he has in game six, but you know, he's going to go from defending a team that was, at times inept in the half court. Well, guys, you could just leave alone. Just for, leave stand alone. Five feet away from. And now one that operates with Swiss precision, Swiss watch precision. And the guy that is maybe the least effective offensively is the guy that is the hub of everything, who is making plays for everything else. That, that worries me a lot in this series because I don't think, and I was talking to a couple of coaches about this today, I don't think they can win unless their two best guys, LeBron and AD, are not just the two best guys on either team, but they have to be a lot better than Curry and than Thompson and Draymond. Yeah. Like they they are a top. I, I love what they've done. I said this to Rob Belenka during the series. Like I, I mean, they've they've been masterful at reshaping the roster after the Westbrook fiasco. Like getting Rui Hashimura worked. All the moves they made worked, but they are still very much a top heavy team. So if LeBron, when we get to Game Two or Three. When every game is every other day and his legs just aren't there, they're going to get beat. Because I think Golden State, from a talent perspective, is significantly better You know, coming into the series. What the Lakers have going for it is that they have LeBron and AD, who are great, and they draw a lot of fouls. <laughs> like this, yeah. this Laker team gets fouled a lot. So if they can find a way, led by LeBron and AD, to muck this game up and get to the free throw line and slow it down, they'll give themselves a chance to win. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the AD piece of this because like Chris Paul went down already, mm -hmm. the over under for him limping off in the playoffs was probably like, I don't know, game nine. 
you would have said, like, would you go over under game nine? And like, oh, man, nine straight games. AD is working on six. I would I would have said the over or under for him probably would have been nine, eight or nine, two. So that's another thing to watch out for. I, I can't wait. I mean, by the time people listen to this, game one over have already happened. But it's just so fun that these two guys are playing again. Like do, the do odds give, of this. Do, do you give AD credit? Because he comes back in late January and he only misses three games the rest of the season. They're all back-to-back situations, one end or yeah. the front end of the back end. And he's taken some falls, like the, the ankle sprain against Minnesota that looked tough yeah. at the time. He played through that. He fell on his hip a couple of times in the last round. He played through that. Are you he's, congratulating an NBA player for falling down a couple of times and getting I'm, up? I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, it's fair. But <laughs> I'm, I'm congratulating AD on yeah. being able to play through stuff that I don't think he was playing through before. That's that's kind oh, that's of that's good. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll accept I'm gonna that give one. him a a brief, you know, a little award there for that. Can I push back on you calling the Polinka restructuring masterful? <laughs> because I just want to point out, and I agree, the trades have worked out nicely. They did offer both first round picks unprotected and Russell Westbrook for Kyrie Irving, and the Nets said no. <laughs> that was a trade the Lakers wanted to do, and they offered. And by the way, the Nets should have said yes. And by the way, would have been better with Westbrook in the playoffs than Spencer Dinwiddie in a 19th wing. So I don't know. I'd rather have those Laker picks than one Dallas pick. Right? How, how many, okay, but how many trades build did Danny Ainge try to make that didn't go through that would have been, that would have reshaped the Celtics? Well, that's, today? I mean, oh my God, the Justice Winslow. How many first round picks was Justice Winslow? It was like four. Was Jesus. Yeah, you're right. Danny, Danny dodged the bullets. All right, give me, uh, give me, a hundred seconds on Tank Davis before we go. You you think he's the future of boxing right now? Not a not the greatest guy. I'm just going to point that out. But we've had in the past future of boxing also not the greatest guys. Um, he is way way up there for me. For a Jesus, how do you beat this guy? Because you have a like basically a ferocious power counterpuncher. Yeah. So what what's the move? Like it like Garcia's. Say, so, right, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it to him. I'm gonna, I'm gonna attack him. And he's swinging, and he's swinging with abandon the first round and a half. And then Tank's like, cool, boom, and that's it. The fight, I mean, the fight lasted four more rounds, but it was done. He was, he was not. You knew it was over. How do you fight this guy? Who does it? Who does it successfully? You have to outbox him at a high volume because if there's any weakness in Tank Davis's game is that he's very economical with his punches. You go back to the second round against Garcia before he knocked him down. Like, Tank is a great thinker in the ring. One of the great thinkers in all of boxing. Terrence Crawford is up there. Yeah. Tyson Fury is up there. Tank went under not one, not two, but three of Ryan Garcia's hooks before he countered with that perfect left that put him down. So... He's always kind of looking for that perfect shot. And if you are a accurate volume puncher, and there are not many of them in boxing, at least not in his weight class, you give yourself a chance against Tank. But Tank has been doing this, you know, for five years now. The criticism of him is that he's been doing it against B and C level fighters. Like, yeah. we don't, there's rarely been a Tank Davis fight where he hasn't been at least a four to one or five to one favorite. You, you don't give guys credit for doing it in fights they're supposed to win in a lopsided way. He was a favorite against Ryan Garcia, but it was only about two to one, you know, right around that time, three to one uh, on some books. But Ryan Garcia was supposed to be a stiff test 
And Tank dominated every moment of that fight, every minute of that fight. And that knockout punch wasn't some random punch. He knew Ryan Garcia was a little soft in the midsection, and he hit him right on the spot where, supposedly, according to the Showtime All Access, that's exactly where Ryan got hurt in his training camp just weeks earlier. So Tank is, is, is such a smart guy in the ring. What I hope for with Tank Davis is that it's not one of these, all right, well, we fought the guy you critics wanted us to fight. Now we're going to go back to fighting stumble bumps. There's a huge opportunity this year for Tank Davis to go to the next level. Devin Haney on May 20th, he mm. fights Vasily Lomachenko. Massive fight. Haney's mm. the favorite in that fight. If Haney comes out of that fight, he is a free agent as far as boxing promotion goes. His top-ranked deal is over. His ESPN deal is over. He can walk to Gervonta's side of the street and fight him for the undisputed championship at 135. Devin will do it. He'll stay at 135 for one more fight. If Tank Davis fights and beats uh, uh, Devin Haney, not only in my mind would he be the biggest star in American boxing, Canelo probably still globally, you know, just does huge numbers everywhere, but not only would he be the biggest star in American boxing, he would have a pretty strong case to be top three, maybe even number one on all the pound-for-pound lists. So I just hope for Tank Davis, it's not a one-off here. We're not like, all right, we fought Ryan now. How about Roley Romero 2 or Isak Cruz 2 fights that nobody really cares about? I hope he builds on this and keeps taking on those tough tests. One of my rules with great boxers is when they're smiling during the ring out of the pure joy that they're, they know they're going to beat the guy and it's early and they're doing it partly because they're trying to psych the other guy up, but also they're just enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. That's usually not a guy you want to fight. It's like, why is that guy? It's like the movie smile. Why is that guy smiling? We're in a, we're in a, a boxing match where I'm trying to beat the hell out of him and he's fucking just kind of enjoying it and laughing. That's watch, a nightmare. Watch the, if you watch back tanks fight against Ryan, the in-between rounds in the corner. Like, Tank's barely listening to his corner. He's kind of looking for his mom in the crowd. He's looking for different people in the crowd. All you hear is trainer Calvin Ford say is like, this guy's not on your level. Like, what are we doing here? Like, what are we doing? Just keeps pumping yeah. him up. And Tank just goes out there and executes. He's, he's elite, man. I was a skeptic of Tank Davis before that fight because I didn't like the competition right. you he was facing. Him. But yeah. seeing it against Ryan Garcia, seeing him walk through some of Ryan's shots... I I am all in on Tank Davis and just want to keep seeing him against the best. What's the name of your boxing podcast? Boxing with Chris Mannix. Very uh, yeah. Well, you can yeah. listen if you want to hear Mannix talk more boxing. Uh, read him at Sports Illustrated as well. Mannix, good to see you as always. Anytime, Bill. All right, that's it for the podcast. Thanks to KOC and Chris Mannix and Matt Ishbia. Thanks to Kyle Crane for producing. Thanks to Steve Cerruti, as always. Don't forget about the new rewatchables we put up on Monday night, Iron Man. Happy birthday, Zoe Simmons. I will see you on this podcast on Thursday. <laughs>